Adults can actually learn way more efficiently and effectively than kids can because they've got this big existing associative network. My thinking is the older I get, the more efficient I get at learning. Hello and welcome to the Scrimba podcast. On this weekly show, I speak with successful developers about their advice on learning to code and getting your first junior developer job. I'm Alex and today I'm joined by the founder of Free Code Camp, Quincy Larson. Quincy was a school director before learning to code and founding Free Code Camp, a non-profit company which makes coding accessible for all. But of course, you already knew that. How does the person who made the website where everyone else learns to code, learn to code himself? In this episode, we are going to find out. As you might appreciate, new developers today have some fantastic resources available. Resources like Free Code Camp, resources like Scrimba. Fantastic because they make sure you're learning the right things, make sure you're learning them well, and might even offer you a bit of fun and a social element which keeps you on track with your goals for longer as well. Even though Quincy learned to code in a slightly different time many years ago, I have to say it's remarkable how much of his experience and advice as a teacher turned developer remains fundamentally relevant today. And because we're talking about the world before all these communities and edutech platforms, we really get to the essence of what you need to know to stay on track with your coding goals, internalize what you're learning, and become successful, whatever that means to you. You are in for an absolute treat in today's episode. Since Quincy is such a senior teacher and a founder and someone so ingrained in this space, I felt like I could ask him some really hard questions that I really wanted to know the answers to. As always, you are listening to the Scrimba podcast. Let's get into it. I didn't start coding until I was like 31 years old in a, an extremely circuitous, ambiguous way. I definitely felt like I was kind of pawing my way through fog. I was a school director and I just wanted to make our school more efficient. So I tried to learn a little bit, you know, get dangerous enough with a few tools like Excel macros and this tool called AutoHotKey, where you can like programmatically click on different government forms. And so I was able to figure out ways to like automate a lot of the compliance aspects of running a school with international students, visas and things like that, and uh, free our teachers up so they could spend more time with students and less time doing back office workflows. I had this friend who I met at the Santa Barbara hacker space. I was running a school in Santa Barbara at the time and he was just like hardcore like Linux purist and uh, he turned me on to like Emacs and having a server and SSHing into a more powerful computer from like a, we would just use these cheap netbooks and you know because it was like Linux on both sides, it wasn't that big of a transition from your command line to doing stuff on that bigger, more powerful computer and he would mine like Bitcoin <laughs> Back in 2012, 2011. Oh, wow. That could be a rich man by now. Unfortunately, I don't think he hung on to much of it because, I mean, you never know when the peak is going to be. Anyway, I just learned a tremendous amount from this guy. His name is Steve, and he kind of told me, like, you should learn Python. And so I spent a ton of time doing Project Euler problems using Python. Stanford had a JavaScript course that I took. I took the Stanford Relational Database course. And then I took a bunch of other courses and tutorials. I did like the Michael Hartle Rails tutorial and I got a job. My first job as a developer was doing Rails development. So I used Python the hard way. I used that O'Reilly head first HTML 
O'Reilly Head First Networks. I learned a ton about security just from hanging out with, you know, the old school cypherpunks that like have the version of Linux that like wipes everything every time you shut the computer. You can't underrate that, like hanging out with other developers and the sorts of serendipitous things you run into that might just not come up in your current curriculum, whatever that might be. Absolutely. I tell people to do two things when they're learning the code. And this doesn't matter what tools you're using. I mean, you could just be using library books, which I use library books too. Try to code at least a little every day and hang out with other people who code. Like hanging out with other people who code is so important because you also feel that sense of like belonging and that affinity for other people. And you know that they had to struggle through understanding, you know, how like Linux flags on commands work. And, you know, they had to like wrap their head around how version control systems work and all these other concepts, right? Hanging out with other people is so valuable. I know it's been harder since the pandemic, but if you can get into a room with other people who are learning to code, whether that's through like a local computer club or going to hackathons, anything you can do to get with other people, you're going to learn a lot. And more importantly, you're going to feel that moral support and that motivation. The thing that's really remarkable about tech, I think, that I don't think is so true in other industries and careers, per conversations with my friends and people I meet, is just this willingness to pay it forward and to help others. And I think part of it comes from like just, you know, being cool and wanting to help out. But also like coders love to talk about the things they're excited about. And to some experienced developers, there's nothing more exciting than a blank canvas who will listen to you geek out about command line flags again. Yeah, absolutely. I think it goes back to the hacker ethic. There's this book, I can't remember the name, but it was written by this famous journalist who's written for uh, the Wall Street Journal and a bunch of other publications. He wrote a book about Google. He wrote a good book about Apple. He uh, went and hung out with like all the different like Linux user groups and all the different you know security focused people. And he just was basically a fly on the wall. And they had the whole earth catalog. The, the information wants to be free. It also wants to be expensive. That speech, that comes from this book. It was memorialized in that book. Is it called Hackers, Heroes of the Computer Revelation by Stephen Levy? Yes. We'll link it in the show notes, Quincy. Stephen Levy. Perfect. Thank you. Yes, that is an excellent book. It's like 30, 40 years old. Really good, though. I think that if you read that, you'll kind of get it. Like, why are people so serious about free software? Code is infinitely reproducible. Why hoard the code? Why compete when the entire world is trying to push everything to the software layer and the pie is getting so huge that you don't really have to be looking over at your neighbor and thinking, oh, this person's going to eat my lunch if I don't hustle. You know, it's, it's not like real estate where there's a finite amount of land or something like that. It, it's just it's not an adversarial field. I mean, obviously, information security is adversarial in nature. But most areas, you're just trying to make things more efficient and that generates more economic activity and ultimately, you know, more people can get into the field. So I would attribute a lot of the collaborative nature to that ethos, the hacker ethic. I never really thought about that, to be honest. And the fact that this book is pushing 40 years old and still relevant today, I think sort of proves how baked into computer software, things like free and open source are collaboration. I mean, everything we do as developers, we might be sitting alone writing the code, but we are always building on top of the shoulders of giants. And that's a huge part of the humility that you need to have as a software developer. You might be writing some code, but it incorporates libraries, it incorporates frameworks, it incorporates you know kernels that have been written by other people. You are a princess sitting on a giant pile of mattresses. And if there's a pea somewhere down there, it's going to affect every single layer and it's going to percolate up and you're going to be like, ah, I need to fix this. And the great news is because most of these tools are open source, you can jump off that pile of mattresses and you can start fishing around under and you can find that pea and remove it. 
That's what open source is all about, like going back and contributing to the tools that help you get where you are. Going back to this idea that you learned to code about FreeCodeCam a while ago, and I think you mentioned you were in your 30s. I can't help but think there must have been more uncertainty back then. Like, you know, a lot of people today in their 30s are wondering, am I too old to code or like, can I do it? And thankfully, hopefully they come across inspiring success stories from FreeCodeCamp, Scrimba or other parts of the web. And that sort of assures them that it can be done. Was there any sort of assurances that you could be successful at this? Because, you know, there were surely less uh, stories to look at and people's footsteps to follow. I did have a friend who she was a teacher. I think she was teaching like Latin or something at a high school and she was 55 and she just started doing Coursera. There's this big two part algorithm online course that she took through Stanford and she took a bunch of other stuff and she was able to get through the coding interview and she got a job as a software engineer at Apple. You know, for a 55 year old woman to get a job as a software engineer at Apple after just teaching, basically, that, that's pretty, okay, I think me as a, you know, a white male who's like only 31, I don't think it's that big of a deal. People ask me all the time, it's one of the most common questions I get, it's like, oh, I'm 26, or sometimes people will approach me when they're like 17 or 18 and they'll be like, oh, you know, all the all the other kids in school have been coding for years and like, I'm, I don't even know how to do HTML and CSS. And I just tell them, look, with a year or two of consistent effort, you can get close to where they are. It's the 80-20 rule at work. You learn approximately 20% of the stuff you need to learn out there and you can do 80% of the stuff that people that you know have maybe close to 100% of the skills would be able to do. You just need to learn a few key things and that will give you what you need to get your foot in the door at a company and then the real learning starts once you get a job and you're working on a team and actually maintaining like a large legacy code base and things like that. But you know, I speak from a position of relative privilege. I had saved up a lot of money for a teacher and a school director. I'd say like basically half of everything I'd earned for like 10 years. <laughs> so I had this kind of nest egg. It was only 150,000 US dollars, but that's a lot of money. And that's what I ultimately, I was like, okay, I'm just gonna use some of this while I'm learning to code. And within nine months, I was able to get a job as a software developer. My wife still had benefits through her company. So there was never any real risk. Again, not everybody's in a position where they can just drop everything and you know go to hackathons every weekend like I did. And that's one of the reasons we developed Free Code Camp is an acknowledgement that like, hey, I did it in nine months working full time. But for most people, it's probably going to take closer to 18 months, maybe two years. And they're going to be doing it 30 minutes a day and then maybe like three or four hours a day on the weekend. That way, they don't have to incur the risk of leaving their job. And in the U.S., it's a very real risk that you're going to have some sort of health complication if you don't have health insurance. You want to make sure you always have health insurance just in case something happens. So it's particularly precarious here. But everybody's situation is different. Some people are taking care of a parent who has a disability or they, they've got kids or they just themselves have some form of disability or mental health issue that, that prevents them from being able to sit down and just crank through tons of learning resources. So everybody's going to take a different amount of time, which is one of the reasons Free Code Camp is completely self-paced. We focus a lot on accessibility, making sure you can do it with the screen reader, making sure everything works offline, that you can run, run things locally, just to adapt to people's circumstances. Because I was that like 1% of people that like could actually just drop their job and, and do that. And most people are not in those situations. I guess as a, as a teacher, you were probably pretty well equipped to teach yourself coding. Yeah, well, I knew a lot about how people learn from helping adult learners, especially, specifically adults. I don't have like teaching kids 
kids experience. Almost everybody I taught was engineers from Brazil, doctors, physicians from India, physicians from Saudi Arabia. Obviously, India, uh, they speak English natively, so not very many of my students were from there. By the way, when you say adults, like what kind of age are you talking about? People in their 20s and sometimes in their 30s and 40s. People who were coming over to the US and needed to get a graduate degree and they could attend our program and do that in lieu of taking standardized tests. So that was appealing for people that didn't want to like cram for like the TOEFL or the IELTS course. They could take this intensive English program and then transfer into the university that way. What were some of the like study techniques and approaches that really helped adult learners that you applied when you learned to code? Learning by doing was the big thing. Like it's one thing to sit around and read, you know, English books. And there's certainly a lot of value in just reading a whole lot. There's a whole lot of value primarily in doing and actually going and talking to native speakers in that language. And for programming, that means sitting down and actually trying to write programs and getting the computer to do what you want, running commands in the command line and not getting error messages. Interactivity is the most effective way to learn. And in fact, I think in the future, we'll just have virtual, like it'll be like the matrix where you just close your eyes and you know, you'll, you'll spend a simulated like thousand hours <laughs> flying helicopters and things like that and learning, oh, I've got to like slow down here. I've got to like come into this angle of the land. All those different things you're going to learn experientially to where it's intuitive. If, if you've ever learned to juggle a soccer ball or to play a musical instrument or to speak a world language, a lot of it is just muscle memory and you can't even necessarily articulate how you're able to do it. You can just do it. In programming, there is an intuitive aspect to it. You can learn all the theory behind it. And it's just like with the learners of English, they had done all the theory in high school and they understood like what a gerund was and they understood what infinitive was and like subjunctive and like all these different concepts that you might need to know to really understand the grammar of English. But, you know, here in America, <laughs> we speak English with a reasonable degree of proficiency, at least those of us who grew up here. And most of us couldn't necessarily diagram a sentence. It's just like intuitive. And the way you develop intuition is you doing it, not reading, not watching video courses necessarily. We develop a whole lot of video courses on FreeCodeGames YouTube channel, but our hope is that people will clone the GitHub repo and build the project and code along at home with the video course. Coming up on the Scrimba podcast, can an old dog learn new tricks? Absolutely. I will return with Quincy, founder of Free Code Camp, in just a minute. But first, Jan, the producer, and I have a favor to ask of you, dear listener. That's right. We hope you're enjoying the show. And if you are, good news. The best way to support a podcast you like is free. All it takes is a bit of word of mouth. So if you find this episode motivating, insightful, useful, or entertaining, we'd be really thankful if you shared it with someone, be it on socials or in person, or maybe on Discord. You can also subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts or maybe even leave us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Here on the Scrimba podcast, we interview industry experts like Quincy, but also recently hired junior developers, so you can learn from them both. We also love stories about career change, and recently we had quite a few. There was Theo, who used to be a teacher. There was Sylvia, who worked at a pharma company. There was Stevie, who was a scientist and a writer before he pursued development. And next week on the show, we're talking to... 
a pastor turned developer, Chris McCoy. I messed around with coding a little bit in high school for, you know, like three or four months. I was trying to do stuff and then I didn't touch it again until I was 33. Since I'm also a pastor, it's a part-time job. I've been doing other stuff along with it and I've done everything, you know, worked retail, I've mowed grass, I've done lots of other things, some handyman work. Most recently I was doing uh, like food delivery and DoorDash and Uber Eats and Instacart and that sort of thing. And I just got really kind of tired of it. And I was like, there has to be, you know, something that can engage my brain, something that can be a little better, something that's a little more fun. That is next week on the Screamba podcast. And now back to the interview with Quincy. We have this almost joke as Scrimba that you wouldn't expect to get better at playing tennis by watching Roger Federer, right? Like you might learn a trick or two or be inspired, but at the end of the day, you need to get your hands on the racket and practice, 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 rack in those hours and yeah, build your muscle memory in that case, but intuition's another great word for it. I think it might be a human nature thing. Maybe it comes from school. Maybe it comes from video games. We kind of expect everything to be very linear and observable. Like you go from level one to level two and you know, you can feel good about that because you know you're progressing. But I think coding is almost elusive in in some way because you'll certainly be making progress and you might find yourself graduating to watch the next module in Scrimba or move on to another certificate on Free Code Camp. You don't necessarily feel like you're internalizing everything. You don't necessarily put those skills to use right away. But over time, it just kind of clicks and you put your head up, you take your fingers off the keyboard and you're like, ah. I know what to do. And like, there was nothing linear about it. You just kind of find you arrive one day and you know, for all the overthinking you might've done up until that point, wondering if you can do it, wondering whether you're on track, you just had to trust the process a little bit, right? Absolutely. Programming though does offer plenty of opportunities to get humbled, even when you think like, oh, I'm well beyond having to struggle with this type of problem, but oh, actually, maybe I don't understand it as well as I thought I did, you know? What I often tell people is programming specifically, you need to be a very humble, circumspect person because by definition, you're always working on new problems that you haven't solved before because code is infinitely reproducible. If, if you'd already solved a problem, you could just reuse your solution from the previous one. So you're always pushing the frontier of your knowledge a little bit farther and having to learn new things and try new things. So as a result, you always kind of feel like you're learning. Being a software engineer, your core job description is not coding, it's learning. Are you of the opinion that learning by doing essentially, kinesthetic learning, I guess it's called, is specifically good for adult learners? If you think about the adult brain, and when I say adults, like I'm really thinking people that are like 25, because that's when a lot of people in neuroscience, you know, by about age 25, you're you and your brain is like fully formed. Let's say you're 25. You've probably already spent a lot of time walking. You probably spent a lot of time typing and looking at things and recognizing them. Like all those different faculties are probably pretty developed. You could say that you're kind of in your prime, so to speak. I do think that at that point, you can learn by doing in a way that perhaps a child wouldn't necessarily be able to do. For example, I'm teaching my son, who's four years old, I'm teaching him reading. And every night we spend about an hour reading books and practicing spelling and things like that. For him, it's really difficult to even read a book or like, like there, I believe that there are some kind of prerequisites for being able to learn programming. One of them being like command of at least one world language, the ability to kind of think critically and, you know, reason and uh, be able to hold pictures in your head and hold concepts in your head and like all these things that you kind of develop just during the first few years of your life. So I wouldn't I wouldn't go so far as to say like, oh, yeah, kids can learn the same way as adults, because I don't know that they necessarily can. 
But again, I just want to emphasize, I'm speaking way out of my area of expertise. My expertise is in adult learners. Well, the thing is, like, when you are a kid, like, it is a pretty accepted fact that you you absorb things like a sponge. For example, I happen to speak Welsh, but I don't ever remember learning it. Like, I was just in school in Wales and, you know, I just ended up absorbing it, essentially. And I know that, obviously, when you're in school, you're bombarded with a bunch of different subjects. Admittedly, you might go deeper as an adult, but you tend to specialize a bit more as things go on. So I personally think it's true that as a kid, your brain's more absorbent and malleable. And that's probably true in your teenage years as well, to some extent. Simultaneously, and I think this is more subjective, as adults, and especially people, you know, 30, 40, and that, you know, getting to that sort of age, you start to wonder, like, can an old dog learn new tricks kind of thing? Like, is my brain as malleable as it, as it used to be? Like, can you actually learn a new skill like programming? What do you think? Oh, yeah. I look back at when I was a kid and I didn't grow up in a multilingual household or anything. I had to learn Chinese. I lived in China for six years and I went to an intensive Mandarin program. Then I did grad school in Chinese and, and ran some like interpreting for visiting, you know, business people, giving factory tours and stuff like that. And I had to learn Chinese as an adult. And I think a kid learns different ways, but adults can actually learn way more efficiently and effectively than kids can because they've got this big existing associative network in their mind. They've spent you know 25 years learning various facts and learning various places and learning various faces and names. And because adults have this lived experience, they can kind of visualize and associate like, oh, okay, this loop is kind of like a subway and it's always going around and it's making these certain stops. And if somebody gets on here, then they're going to be on until they get off, you know, like different concepts in your mind. You just have this way of thinking. As a result, you know, I didn't have the discipline to learn to play musical instruments when I was a kid. But over the last, you know, since the pandemic had started, I spent a great deal of time uh, learning music theory and, and learning how to play several different instruments. My thinking is the older I get, the more efficient I get at learning. I learned programming when I was 31 and I started learning Spanish, you know, maybe a few years ago. And I feel pretty confident that like I can read things that are people are sharing. One of the things I do every day is I go through every single tweet that mentions Free Code Camp and I'll take a look at it and see what people are talking about. And I, I have this bot that sends me a message anytime somebody mentions Free Code Camp on Reddit. So it, it takes like maybe an hour a day, but I just go through and read what everybody's saying. And sometimes I'll be able to answer questions or help redirect people to like support or just give them moral support and things like that, right? That's a lot of notifications, by the way. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's hundreds, but it's worth it because I learned so much. And one of the cool things I can do is whenever I see a tweet in Chinese or whenever I see a tweet in Spanish or something like that, I take that as an opportunity to like read it in its native language as opposed to just you know quickly you know doing the google translate so it's it's kind of fun because i can practice my uh foreign language skills as i'm reading through there analogies are so great for teaching as well because you are attaching to some existing knowledge but just reframing it a little bit like a kid wouldn't have that existing knowledge with which to understand the analogy in the first place but the older you get the more domains you understand the more opportunities there are to learn that way and parlay your knowledge absolutely yeah just your brain is an associative machine the way that it stores things and the way that it accesses things and the way that it interprets and processes the surrounding world is through association the more books you read, the more experiences you have, the more people you meet, that all kinds of feeds into this big machine. And if anything, personally, my learning has accelerated. Now, it's worth pointing out that like I'm getting eight hours of sleep every day. I've got a very balanced diet and I exercise every day. And like, I don't have to take any medicine. I have to take vitamin D pills because I don't go out in the sun without like SPF 100, just because I'm like paranoid about like getting skin cancer and stuff. 
But, you know, other than that, I don't really have anything stopping me. Like I just wake up and I feel like ready to go do stuff. And I also get to recapitulate what I've learned every day when I hang out with my kids and teach them about the world. So I'm in this very privileged position again. But I definitely feel that my learning is accelerating and I try not to shrink from any new opportunity to learn things, whether that's learning new world languages or music or, or, you know, also just different business processes, learning about accounting and finance and all those different topics that you need as a manager and going in and learning more, right? Uh, learning about geography, like I, I did, the, I use this website, satera.com, and I learned all 193 United Nations countries, like what they look like, where they are on the map. And then I can just go through and like find them on the map real quick. It takes about 17 or 18 minutes for me to do that, but I can do it. I know all the countries. And then even going into like the different, like the states of India, you know, the states of Nigeria, like different, like just learning maps and things like that. It, it's fun. And it's kind of like a, a dumb human trick if like somebody mentions they're from this province and I could be, oh, okay, that's in the Southwest, you know? And also whenever I meet somebody and they're from a place that I haven't heard of, I read the Wikipedia article, there's this great YouTube channel called Geography Now. And <laughs> they've got like a video on every single country in the world. And you can learn, like I met someone from Senegal the other day. So I went and watched the Geography Now on Senegal. I think a big part of continuing to develop as a human being and reach your full potential is just keeping up that momentum, not like saying, I'm just going to veg and like, you know, like, like I don't drink alcohol or anything like that. I think alcohol is one of the worst things you can do to your memory and to your learning. And it puts parts of your brains to sleep. It doesn't necessarily kill brain cells. And it affects your sleep. And if you don't sleep and rest, you can't syndicate knowledge. And that has a knock on effect for sure. Yeah. So like basically everything I do is geared around like, how can I learn faster? How can I be more knowledgeable? Toward the end of my life, I want to be like that old... <laughs> you know, kind of like elder person in the community that people can approach and who has seen some of these patterns before and can recognize like, oh, this is likely to happen based on this. Here's the thing, Quincy, like, I think it's fair to say you're, you're a master teacher. It sounds like you're on your way to becoming a master learner as well. Like, this is obviously something about which you're very passionate. But, you know, that is your personality, right? I think that's awesome, obviously. And it's actually quite similar to my personality, by the way. Like, I'm ever curious, always learning. I quite like the idea myself of being the, the wise elder at some point. But I, I also recognize, and, and this is something I've maybe made a mistake with in the past, is like, I assume people are a bit like me in that respect, and they, they are going to approach learning with the same tenacity when actually a lot of new developers I meet, they maybe just don't care as much. Like it's not to say, you know, it comes back to this idea of coding and passion and do you have to be a passionate coder? And the truth is to achieve a job which pays you a materially more amount that can change your life and maybe affect your schedule, allow you to play uh, with your kids more, or spend more time doing the things you want. You ultimately have to solve a problem for an employer and build these practical skills. And I'm kind of curious to hear your take. I know that you're extremely passionate about learning, but what would you say to to someone who, who's maybe listening to you thinking, oh, I don't know, Quincy, that does not sound like me at all. See if you can cultivate curiosity and empathy and all those other virtues that have been installed in most cultures, I think, historically. But it's totally fine to just want to be able to be productive and put in good work and get paid and, and go pursue your other interests. Like if you're really interested in travel or if you're really interested in just making sure that your kids have plenty of food to eat or buying a home for your parents, you know, whatever it is that your goal is, programming can be a means to an end. The main thing with programming is because it's so powerful. I do think it's important that people are ethical and that they do think about what they're doing. Nobody wants to be creating something that is a net negative for society just to get a paycheck. So I'd say as long as 
you feel that you're a good person and you have good intentions and that you do care about other people and you're not just like you know, some sort of narcissistic sociopathic person that just wants to like maximize their own utility to everyone else's detriment like please become a developer <laughs> those other people uh you can go into like law or something <laughs> but um i do think that because the field is so anchored around learning you should be a naturally curious person and i don't know if you're gonna necessarily be able to like hang in there if you're the kind of person that just kind of like checks out on friday night watches some netflix and like doesn't really do much because again i hope this doesn't sound like harsh or dismissive or anything but you know, this is a field for people who do care and who do want to wield this power that is the ability to bend machines to their will. At the end of the day, that's what you're doing. You're, you're telling a machine what to do and machines will do whatever you tell them to do, right? You can do a lot of damage if you're not a good person. So only chill people, please. <laughs> do you think that anyone can learn to code and be a successful developer? Any sufficiently motivated person can learn to code. I like that. I mean, I've seen people overcome all kinds of significant disabilities, like blindness being a very substantial one, for example. And yet there are many developers who are completely blind who work in the field. You can overcome a lot. There are things that I don't think you can necessarily overcome. I've never met a developer, for example, who had like substantial chromosomal disorders like Down syndrome or anything like that. So I don't want to pretend like, oh, it's okay that you have XYZ. You can overcome that. The reality is people may just not be able to do it despite their heart being in it, their, their motivation. But I think that for a vast majority of people out there who are likely to doubt their ability to become a developer, they probably could if they put in sufficient sustained energy to do so. I also wonder about people who question their own approach to thinking. Earlier, you said, for example, that someone who has good problem solving skills might make a good developer. How would you sort of evaluate your own temperament and personality and, and approach to things? You know, I'm not asking this for any gatekeeping purposes by any means, but I do think it's useful knowledge for anybody can considering this path or maybe on this path to sort of understand a little bit about what they're in for and what things they might have to compensate for if they perceive it to be a weakness or maybe something they can double down on if for your answer they identify it to be a strength, for example. Everybody has their own innate proficiencies, I guess. Aptitudes, I think that's the word I'm looking for. And aptitude is as much perceived as it is observed. Like, a lot of people think, oh, I'm an auditory learner, so I, I should learn using audiobooks. And it quickly becomes like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like, of course, you're better at learning that way because you've put in the most time learning that way, right? I think aptitude, unless you're talking like extreme aptitude, like you could argue Einstein, for example, had like superhuman aptitude in terms of being able to like think abstractly or something like that, right? But I think for most purposes, people are more or less the same and a few, you know, extra percentage of effort can overcome a few percentage of aptitude, if that makes sense. So you can probably overcome it if you're serious about it and it may not even be a thing. Like for example, I had a lot of ear infections when I was a kid and like, I always presumed like I wasn't gonna be able to do music because like, oh, I can't hear very well, but it hasn't really been an issue. Also, like I'm functionally blind in one of my eyes and I always thought, oh, I'm not going to be able to appreciate like three dimensional like VR headsets or anything like that. But I haven't really found it to be that that big of an issue. It's pretty cool that the human body is so plastic. The brain is so plastic. It's really like learning to code is more of a motivational challenge than anything. If you have the will 
to put in the time and energy. And it's very much a tortoise beating the hare type scenario. Like I meet people all the time who seem like they're kid prodigies, essentially, and that they're going to be like the next big developer. This kid may very well be the next day neighbor. <laughs> We've got like this 14 year, I think he's like 15, maybe in the free code camp community. And he's creating these like in-depth tutorials on machine learning and stuff. You can watch them on the YouTube channel, but like, I really, really hope that that kid doesn't burn out because I've seen that so many times. I've seen people who are hares who just explode out of the starting gates. And then at some point they get distracted or they just lose motivation or they're beset with mental illness and everybody just ends up passing them. As long as you're in it for the long haul and you pace yourself, I genuinely believe you can exploit the 80-20 rule and you can basically be a good enough programmer to be able to become a senior developer or a tech lead, an engineering manager, whatever it is you want to do. I am not a great engineer by any stretch of the word, but I was able to build the free code camp code base and, and get momentum about around the project. And I still have enough skills that I can help maintain the project. Although usually I do that through open source contributors. Like you won't see me doing a lot of code contributions. I'm pretty rusty, frankly. I'm, I'm kind of focused on running the organization, but yeah, you'll get there is all I'm saying. Don't let yourself get discouraged. You have a power that nobody else has, which is to completely deflate yourself and completely <laughs> resign yourself to a fate when uh, nobody else can tell you you're not going to make it right. Like they can tell you that and plenty of people told me that. I remember very many people telling me, oh, you should stick with what you're good at. You're like this school director and you're running this school and everything's great. Like you should just keep doing what you're doing. And you know what? Like if I'd stayed in that school that I was running, it would have gone under when COVID hit and COVID hit and, you know, the school went under. There's an illusion of security. There's an illusion of safety. It's always going to feel like I'm so good at this. Even though I see this hill that's higher, I'm going to have to climb down this hill if I want to climb up that bigger hill. But it's worth it to climb down and start climbing up the bigger hill if you want to get as high as possible. I see it a lot more these days. I'm not sure if it's to do with, you know, where I'm looking from, like maybe I'm more active in communities or something. I see this more, but a lot of people do resign themselves to a fate based on certain criteria. So like, for example, a lot of people wonder if they can be programmers of ADHD, for example, and they think it's never going to be possible. Um, but thankfully we have enough success stories that we know that's true, right? Like there's even a whole subreddit dedicated to programming with ADHD. The reason I mentioned ADHD specifically is because I think the, the number of diagnoses and things have increased a lot in recent years as awareness has improved, rightfully so. And what you find is that a lot of developers actually have ADHD and there are some things about ADHD that cause them to levitate towards programming. But had they suspected or known they had ADHD in the first place, you know, they could have resigned themselves to a certain fate, as you put it, and they could have counted themselves out. Another thing I've heard about in the past is like athletes, they as teenagers and young adults, they train vigorously and it's only a few years into their career once they're already champions that they happen to learn they're asthmatic or they only have eight percent uh, lung capacity or something but had they known that before they'd even started they might have counted themselves out completely yeah absolutely and to some extent you know i think it was a blessing to a lot of people it was obviously a curse <laughs> but the fact that like we didn't necessarily diagnose a lot of those issues because you know it could be that like somebody took the guitar out of elvis's hands and said uh you know you've got this mental illness and you need to focus on this or something like that there are lots of instances of those kinds of things throughout history of like famous athletes and famous musicians and, and artists overcoming difficulty like a lot of, one thing a lot of people don't realize about jfk for example the american president john f kennedy was he had like severe i think it was like scoliosis or something but his back was so screwed up that he spent years of his childhood just in bed like he couldn't play with the other kids he couldn't do anything he couldn't even necessarily go to school but 
in a way, that was kind of a blessing because he read tremendously. Like every day he'd read like two or three books. And so by the time he got to college and they were able to like kind of fix his back enough, I mean, it still bothered him throughout his entire life. He had this command of literature and of like history and all these other things that nobody else had because they were out playing all summer while he was just sitting in bed reading. And that's just one example. There are lots of examples of people throughout history who have kind of found themselves in certain circumstances. And those circumstances have actually been the, the greatest source of strength in the sense that it forced them to deviate from a normal life. Let's switch gears and talk a little bit about Free Code Camp because, I mean, it was founded seven years ago. And the funny thing is, there's a lot of very successful developers now. They either work at big companies or they've built personal brands of their own. Who started with Free Code Camp? Like, they had no idea about coding. Uh, Sean Wang, aka Swix, comes to mind. He's been on the Scrimber podcast. And Danny Thompson, as well, always raves about Free Code Camp, which I think is a great testament. He's uh, close to 200,000 followers on Twitter, something now. It's amazing to see him pay it forward. You know, to you as the founder, how does it feel to see and observe the impact that Free Code Camp is having on people's actual lives? Yeah, I mean, it feels good. I'm happy that people are finding Free Code Camp helpful. I'm just one small part of the Free Code Camp community. We've now we've got a team of people in I don't know, like 20 countries around the world doing localization creating tutorials, creating video courses, building the core curriculum. I mean, I definitely feel like it's a win, but it's like a win shared across so many people in the community. I think about the 8,000 people who donate to Free Code Camp every month. It's, it's like 8,263, I think, was the number when I last tallied. Back in the day when you started, could you have imagined the impact this had today? Like it must pop up so often, just, you know, you click on someone's LinkedIn profile, just some new person you've come across, and there it is, like a proud Free Code Camp certificate. Could you have imagined that at the beginning no and all of my initial aspirations and goals and everything like have been met like 10x over so i'm kind of over the rainbow so to speak i've had to kind of adapt to like okay like that worked way better than it ever had any right to do and a big part of it is just like okay i feel extremely blessed the stars have aligned and i've managed to help birth this community that has all this momentum and i just want to do everything i can to help keep pushing that snowball and keep supporting people and motivating people that's brilliant. I think by now it's clear to say Free Code Camp is in it for the long haul and there are many more successes to come. Quincy, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me and the Scrimber audience today. Thank you so much for joining me on the Scrimber podcast. Absolutely, Alex. Thanks again for the opportunity to come on the podcast. I've really enjoyed listening to the episodes over the past few weeks. That was Quincy Larson, a teacher, a learner, and the founder of FreeCodeCamp.org. Make sure to check the show notes for all the ways you can connect with him and also for all the resources mentioned in this episode. If you made it this far, please consider subscribing. We publish a new show every Tuesday and we haven't missed a week since April of 2021, which is a long time ago. The podcast is hosted by Alex Booker. If you want to connect with him on Twitter, his Twitter handle is also in the show notes. If you're sharing an insight you learned from the podcast, make sure to mention him. He does read it all. I'm your producer, Jan Arsinovic, and we'll see you next Tuesday.